0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, good to see you here. Thanks for getting up and coming out uh, early on a Saturday morning. It's great to be back with you. We're talking about uh, spiritual disciplines within the church. When we talk about spiritual disciplines, those practices found in the Bible by which we experience God and by which we grow in grace, the God-given means for those things, We need to distinguish between personal spiritual disciplines, those we practice alone, and interpersonal spiritual disciplines, corporate, congregational spiritual disciplines, those things we do together. So, for example, the Bible teaches us to pray alone. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, when you pray, go into your inner room, close the door, your father who sees in secret will hear you. But we're also taught in the New Testament to pray with the church. So you see personal spiritual disciplines, interpersonal. We're to get into the Bible all by ourselves. We're to meditate on it. That's a personal spiritual discipline. We're also to hear it read, taught, preached with the church. That's interpersonal. We are to worship God privately, but we're to worship with the church. Some of the spiritual disciplines, by nature, are individual, private. If you keep a spiritual journal, you're going to do that by yourself. Fasting is usually done alone, though often can be done in the New Testament with the church. Uh, Solitude, silence, by definition, those things you do alone. Some, by definition, require the presence of people. The Lord's Supper, we mentioned that last night. Jesus commanded us to participate in the Lord's Supper, but we don't serve it to ourselves in our personal devotional life. It's given to the church. Um, To hear the preaching of the Word of God requires a preacher and, and hearers. So both personal and interpersonal spiritual disciplines are in the New Testament, and we're to practice both because the Bible teaches both, and Jesus practiced both. We mentioned that last night, at least part of it. Didn't mention this at least five times in the Gospels we read where Jesus got alone with God. And to follow his example, we too need times alone with God. But as we saw, Dr. Luke tells us in chapter four of his gospel, as his custom was, he was in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So Jesus practiced both a personal and interpersonal spiritual disciplines. The reality is each of us is on a continuum here of we like to be alone more than with groups of people. We're energized more by being alone with God than we are with others. And as I said, this is the kind of person who says, I'd just be happy to take my personal spiritual disciplines. I get more out of that than I do in the gatherings of the church most of the time. I could go off me an evangelical monk, an evangelical nun. I don't need that ungodly half-committed bunch down at the church and only slows me down anyway. But the people who would come out Friday night, Saturday morning would tend the other way, by and large, people that would think, if I'm at the church every time the doors are open, and I pretty much am, and if I profit from that, as I do, I'm sure at the end of all things, that will somehow compensate for the lack of a personal devotion life. No, it won't. And even though you're the kind of person maybe that likes being with people, you're energized more by crowds, you don't like to be alone, and, and God made us all somewhere on that continuum. That's just the way each of us is. We're all leaning one way or the other, but we all need both. Do you see that? Regardless which of these you kind of lean toward, we all need both. And, and the personal spiritual disciplines is what we tend to think of most when we hear about spiritual disciplines. Those that are private, we do alone. And when the, church, church, when the world talks about spirituality, which it does a lot, Everyone's spiritual today, right? I mean, try to find anyone who says, you know, I'm just not very spiritual. Nobody says that. I have a survey from the front of USA Today where a majority of atheists consider themselves spiritual people. But it's always a privatized spirituality, isn't it? You have your spirituality, I have mine, you keep yours to yourself, feel free to do yours your way, I'll do mine mine way, my way. That's not biblical spirituality. There is, yes, the personal side that cannot be compensated for by the greatest church life in the world. There are those personal spiritual disciplines. But we're here at this conference talking about the interpersonal spiritual disciplines. Most of the time when I go to churches, I'm talking about personal spiritual disciplines. and I have to spend some time saying, look, there is no New Testament Christianity apart from the local church. But I want to at least give lip service here to a conference about the church and the disciplines we practice together to emphasize the biblical role of the personal devotional life, our time alone with God and all the personal spiritual disciplines that the book given away this morning, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. That's what that book is about. But now we're talking about spiritual disciplines within the church. Those practices found in the Bible... By which we experience God and by which we grow in grace. In this session, we're addressing this issue: Why fellowship with the church. Anybody here read the book, "Deep Work" by Cal Newport? Highly recommended. Only one other book have I ever read four times, and, and this other than the Bible. And, and this is one of them. Deep Work by Cal Newport. He's the youngest uh, tenured professor ever at Georgetown University. Um, I I was reading a book review in the Wall Street Journal about this one day, and it says, uh, Cal Newport um, uh, is, at the time, he was uh, the the youngest uh, professor at Georgetown University, having gotten his MIT in theoretical mathematics. Okay, think, PhD in mathematics, that alone would, you know, our eyes glaze over in hearing that, right? Just a PhD in mathematics. This is theoretical mathematics. I didn't know there was another kind, you know, but this is theoretical mathematics, and it's applied to computer programming. So in other words, he's just on the, you know, top levels of computer programming. And these are literally the kinds of people who sit and stare at one of those big walls that, with all the uh, formula, on them, you know, and just stare at them for hours. He tells stories about that in the book. So he got his PhD in theoretical mathematics from MIT. While there, getting his PhD, he published a dozen academic papers, which is more than I published in 25 years, and he wrote a number one New York Times best-selling book called So Good They Can't Ignore You, while he's getting his PhD at MIT. In theoretical mathematics. He quits work at five every day, doesn't work weekends. He has two little children, and I said, all right, I'm reading this book. How does this guy do this? I mean, if it's animal sacrifice, I, you know, I want to know. I mean, what, what is it why, there's some secret here, and I, I'm not even close to it. What is it? So anyway, I've read that book four times. I highly recommend it, not only for just personal productivity, uh, but the book Deep Work. For me, Meditation on Scripture is the deep work in the Christian life, and I'm, I'm hoping to write my next book on that. And so, fascinating book. Well, when his newest book came out this spring called Digital Minimalism, uh, by the way, he's, not, he's on no social media. Um, I wanted to read the book. Well, I just finished my, my second reading of the book, and it's, it's fascinating, very helpful. It's not as good as deep work in my, in my view, but um, in digital minimalism, he, he points out several important things. One is a, a, a solitude deprivation that's, that's very common, which is an unexpected consequence of social media. And yet another unexpected consequence that's, that's sort of on the other side of that is the rise of loneliness. And there are a lot of reports being circulated today by people in those fields that the, the greatest mental illness challenge, or however you want to f- phrase the term, the, the biggest Issue that people will go to psychologists and therapists and counselors about is no longer depression, believe it or not, but loneliness. Loneliness at record levels, especially among teenagers, younger people, while at the same time, unparalleled levels of social media access. Who, does, who has the most social media involvement? Teenagers, right? So it, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting look at technology by a guy who's, uh, you know, the youngest tenured track professor ever at Georgetown University who deals in technology and computer programming. So the whole thing is just fascinating. So incidentally, let me say for our young people, uh, teens, 20s, I mean, this what I'm talking about today is especially for you but it it has great application for all of us. This is a subject that that I spent two weeks on in one of my classes at the seminary and that I get the most feedback from from the students. So this is uh, one of the most timely subjects in our culture right now and in our church as well. And I believe that God made us with a craving for what the world calls community. When I talk about fellowship today, that, that is the Christian reflection of, of a built-in need the world calls community. And you know why that we're that way? It's because all of us, even lost people, are made in the image of God. And in the triune Godhead, there are relationships. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, relationships in that way, and we... Reflect that. The world reflects it in terms of community. People have never been more busy. People have never been more isolated, despite the connections of social media. And some of the cultural ways you see this reflected is anybody who has even approximately the same amount or color of hair as I do remembers when there were no Starbucks, there was, there were, there wasn't the proliferation of coffee shops. And part of that proliferation is people having a place to talk to somebody, have a place to go to talk to people. I mean, we've probably all had meetings at Starbucks and coffee shops, right? Go and pay large amounts of money, and you know I'm sitting there looking at my Starbucks cup right there, uh, for a place to talk to people, and uh, what the I'm, I'm thinking now I'm really getting far afield, but the sociologist Robert withnow uh, was he the one who wrote the book on a third place that everyone needs a third place they have the first place is home, second place is work, everybody needs a third place where you, 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 you it's a little more structured than home you're, you you've got you're not as relaxed and you know as much at home, but you're not as formal as you are at work and with people that you don't really have any other connection or anything else in common with except you work, you need a third place. Well, of course, that's, that's the church. But the world even acknowledges that. And so it's, in, it's some club, it's some activity, it's something they do where they gather around something they share in common with somebody. So the world even reflects this, this built-in need that all have because we're made in the image of God. So there's this craving for what the world calls community. In spite of that, because of social media, which appears to connect us more, in one sense, those are connections, they're not conversations, as Cal Newport describes. We're more connected than ever before, and praise God. I mean, if you have a missionary on the other side of the world, you can can FaceTime them right in the middle of a worship service and talk to them face-to-face. Praise God for that. And I travel so much, praise God, for FaceTime and the ability to, you know, no matter where I am, to, to talk face-to-face in one sense, at least video of my, of my wife or my daughter or my grandchildren. So there are the blessings of technology, but we want to recognize the downsides, and the downsides often are in these meaningful face-to-face connections. We're connected with more people than ever. We have koinonia with fewer than ever, perhaps. But there's an an intimacy in a believing community that we see described most clearly in the first description of life in the early church. Acts 2.42, a passage you know well. They were continually, continually devoting themselves to four things. the apostles' teaching. They sat and listened to the apostles' teach the word of God. And then to fellowship. There's our word. To the breaking of bread, probably coming to eat together and take the Lord's Supper together while they're there, and to prayer. They pray together. And I believe it is one of the greatest needs of the church today, because we are also people in this culture, and just as we see it reflected in the culture at large, we see it within the church. We're affected by the same cultural factors. So first, we should fellowship with the church because it is a unique privilege. It's something unbelievers cannot do. Let me define what I mean by fellowship here. It's the English translation of the New Testament Greek word koinonia. K-O-I-N-O-N-I-A. Koinonia. A word you need to get used to. Most of you are familiar with it, but I want to push it today. And you know, Normally, I tell my students, never use your Greek or Hebrew in church. They don't want to hear it. They don't care about it. Just say what it means, why it's important, but you don't need to tell them what's, what the word is necessarily unless it's very relevant. Uh, like in spiritual Lisbon's for the Christian life, the, the theme verse for the book is discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, First Timothy 4, 7. The word discipline yourself there is the word gymnasia. We get our word gymnasium, gymnastics, and so that, that actually helps to hear that background. Well, this is perhaps the word I use most often in the local church, and that's koinonia. Because as I hinted last night, if I say fellowship, I fear that the picture that comes into most people's minds is contrary to what the word means. So I'd rather use a fresh word, koinonia, and, and, and pack it with the meaning that, that I want to pack it. But it's very colorful a uh, word that's sometimes uh, translated as participation, partnership, communion, and it has the idea to share in something. And it was a word that was very commonly used in the Greek language of the New Testament, not just in the New Testament, in other words, we have, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of documents of all kinds, grocery lists, uh, receipts, business receipts, letters, all kinds of documents from the unbelieving world in the same era as the New Testament. And you see the word koinonia in a lot of those documents. Uh, it's used to talk about sharing in ownership of a boat. Uh, koinonia was used to talk about, uh, you know, marriage. Uh, uh, having uh, mutual uh, interest, you own own part of it, I own part of it, of a business, uh, business partnerships and so forth, Uh, legal relationships, uh, citizenship that we share together in citizenship in a country, but especially friendship. So it was a common New Testament word but the new te- in the times of the New Testament, but God inspired writers like the Apostle Paul and others to use koinonia as a description of a believer's relationship with Jesus. So filling this word with, with new meaning. Fellowship with Christ involves the, the fellowship with his life, with his death, his suffering, his death, his inheriting, his reigning. This is all Romans 6 and 8 and so forth. Paul wrote of having a share in Christ's sufferings, that famous passage in Philippians 3.10, but also sharing in his glory. And we will participate in that. We will koinonia in that. We will share in his glory. Likewise, he talked about a Christian's fellowship with the Holy Spirit, 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen. So the Holy Spirit indwells each believer. We... We share this body together with the Holy Spirit. Now, let me let me be clear. Uh, should have put that up. The basis for fellowship with other Christians is the fellowship we have with Jesus. In other words, the, the fellowship we share together is not just tips and tricks and things we learn to do together. That, that is, first of all, because we share together in Christ. So our fellowship is in Christ. Because we individually believe into Christ, our union with Christ gives us this connection, this koinonia that we have with each other. So that's the, the basis of our um, fellowship. This is the emphasis of 1 John 1 and verse 3 what we have seen and heard, in other words, here's John the Apostle, we saw with our eyes, we saw Jesus heal these people, we we saw Him in person. What we heard with our own ears, we proclaim to you also. It's very important. Apostolic connection. People who saw and heard Jesus are now telling us what they saw and heard. So that you may have fellowship with us. Okay, that's the horizontal. And indeed, our, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So, On this earth, we have this horizontal connection, but it's because we have this vertical connection through Jesus. So you see kind of a triangle there. So this supernatural quality of the relationship we have with Jesus is the basis of what we share together in Christ. And commenting uh, on uh, on this passage, John MacArthur wrote, anybody in fellowship with Jesus Christ is also in fellowship with anybody else in fellowship with Jesus Christ. This is our common ground. It is not social, it's not economic, intellectual, cosmetic, or anything else superficial. Our common ground, he emphasizes, is that which is pulsing through the life of every Christian, the heartbeat of God. Our common ground is that we possess a common eternal life and are children in the same family. So it's this vibrant, this vigorous word koinonia the Bible uses when it describes the spiritual bond I have with you, and you have with Pastor Ken, and he has with you, and all of us with each other. Together we participate in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We have communion in eternal life. We're partners in a great commission and the work of the kingdom of God, and we share a common gift, which is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so Christian fellowship is unique. No other relationship compares with it. Not husband and wife, not parents and children, not the kinship between brothers or sisters, not the closeness between dear friends. These share the best intimacies of earthly life, but unbelievers have that. Even unbelievers experience them, even though with a different quality than believers do. Nevertheless, it's what the Bible refers to as common grace. In most circumstances, parents love their children. Friends love each other. Spouses love each other. Siblings love each other. That's just common grace. But the supernatural element enters in when we talk about koinonia, that there's a, a, an element of a relationship between one Christian and another that is not there in the closest connections otherwise the world can have. So by now, it's obvious there is a difference between just attending worship together and Christian fellowship, though there is an element of quininia when we come together for worship. Christian fellowship extends far beyond mere socializing. And so now we want to get into something I hinted at last night that's very significant. Socializing is good and necessary. It's part of the human fabric. God made us that way. He made us for relationships. And so it's normal to socialize. And in, in talking about it this morning, please hear me say I'm not putting down anything about socializing. It's a good gift of God. It is common grace that he gives to the just and the unjust, just like rain. Unless we get too much of it, right? But it's it's normally a good thing. But it's crucial to understand the distinction between socializing and fellowship. And I mention that because when I say fellowship, I think the picture that comes to mind is normally socializing, and that's short of koinonia. And I believe we, we experience koinonia much less than we think, even in these walls. Let me illustrate visually what I mean. You have, this is an aerial view here of concentric circles. The outer circle is socializing, and socializing... Within that is cornania. You don't have cornania unless you're socializing in a social context. You've got to be with other people. But you can have the outer circle socializing even between two believers and not enter into cornania. Socializing is talking about news, weather, sports, work, family, politics. And there's nothing wrong with that. Good, healthy, and normal. The godliest Christians do a lot of that. But cornania is talking about God and the things of God. And I contend we do much less of that than we think even at church. You've had quite a bit of time of conversation this morning since you came into this building. As you think about it, or perhaps reflect on those you had last night, how many of those conversations had anything to do with God and the things of God? I guess as some of you would, many of you would have to say, I I don't remember any, actually. And that's pretty typical. This is why we need to think of koinonia as a discipline, an intentional thing. That I argue is needed as much as ever before. But I just want to highlight the fact that even at church, when surrounded with other believers, we can leave having never had fellowship in the sense of talking about God and the things of God. And that's not good. That's, that's like coming to a church with great people, but not hearing the word preached. All right, it's, it's good to be there, it's beneficial, you were glad, you, had, you enjoyed being with people, but you missed something if you didn't hear the word preached. And we miss something if we don't experience koinonia. Go back to Acts 2.42, Apostles' Doctrine, Fellowship, Breaking of Bread and Prayer. Without koinonia, we miss an important element of the Christian life. And I want to say, I think it's become so common we don't even know that we've missed it. Just like people who've never been in a church very much where the Word was preached. They don't know what they're missing. You do. If you go to a church and the word is not preached, you're, you know, you just, you feel it. Your soul draws up and you get, you're hungry. And you know, this is not what it's supposed to be. I'm missing hearing the word. And if people have become accustomed to not experiencing koinonia, and my contention is that's it's quite common, we don't know what we're missing. We don't long for it as much because we don't, we haven't had it. Jeff Packer, the theologian, said, it's not a good sign when a person sees no difference between sucking sweets and eating a square meal. Equally, it is not a good sign when Christians see no difference between social activities in Christian company. When I'm talking about socializing. I don't mean just, you know, people at work that aren't Christians making a claim to it. I'm talking about in Christian company. They see no difference between social activities in Christian company and what the New Testament calls Fellowship in Christ. Many never seem to be able, or just never call to their attention, the distinction between socializing and fellowship. So it it can look like this. Two or more Christians can sit together for hours, talking only about the outer circle, and never get into the inner circle. And the things that that really matter. And and I'm not saying that every conversation between Christians has to include some spiritual element. Some overtly spiritual element. Not saying that at all. That somebody has to talk about Bible verses or, you know, something like this. And therefore, let me also indicate, again, as an aerial view, you, you can... Generally, you start out in the outer circle, you come into the inner circle, and then back out, and then back in. That's, that's often what Christian conversation is like. I'm saying we hardly ever enter into that, that inner circle, talking about things at a heart level, and without personal interaction, about the, the mutual interests in the things of God, and problems in life as addressed from the biblical perspective, and our... Our spiritual lives are impoverished without it. At the end of the day, having merely socialized, we say, well, we had good fellowship. Well, no, we had good socializing. Only Christians have the opportunity for the rich banquet of fellowship. But too often we settle for the fast food of socializing. We have something that we share together in the life and the resurrection of Jesus and His Holy Spirit that, that the world doesn't even dream of. But it can happen almost any time. Any you meet together with a, a, another believer. Uh, it can be while you're Serving together while we are working in the workplace together, it can be sharing a meal together, it can be in praying together it just it, it permeates almost any activity or can whenever two Christians are are together. I saw an example of this some time back when I was leading a retreat. Uh, I was at a conference at a church in California, and on Saturday I just had a gathering with the men, and so i 'd spoken and Entered into a time of uh, you know the snacks uh, during a break time, and there were about nine or ten guys standing around in a circle. So I'm having my coffee and eating whatever it was, kind of moseyed over, just sort of eavesdrop wondering what these guys were, were talking about. And I heard a guy say, Well, the doctrine of election really opened up to me when I'd read Romans 9. Wow, this is interesting. They weren't talking about work or football. They were talking about Bible and theology. And as I listened, they talked about family worship. They talked about uh, the value and methods of keeping a journal. They mentioned the cross. They talked about prayer, how to take notes in a sermon. And there were whites and blacks and Latinos in that group. There were truck drivers. There were executives. There were farm laborers, men who otherwise would never... Cross paths, men who otherwise would have almost nothing else in common. Socially, economically, culturally. And yet here they were talking about something very important together. The most important thing that to all of them, each of them had the one most important thing in their lives and it was God. And so they wanted to talk about the most important things in their lives. And they were unified by that despite the Tremendous number of differences they had in so many other areas. It's a wonderful, wonderful privilege. One of my favorite writers is a retired Scottish minister named Morris Roberts. He said, fellowship between Christians is the gift of God. It is a true means of grace. Christians are spiritual people, and they feel comparatively isolated in this world. Amen to that, right? But God gives them this compensation, that the fellowship they enjoy with like-minded brethren and sisters is marvelously therapeutic and sweet. God intends for all of us to experience this in the reservoir where that that exists where we may drink the refreshing waters of his spirit is in the local church. Well, let's move now to the unique benefits of fellowship. When you fellowship with the church, you experience the grace of God in ways you can't otherwise. Did you know that? Through quinia, you experience the grace of God in ways you otherwise could not. Um, Let's actually put our eyeballs on Acts 242 because I I want to ask you to make an observation here. Again, this is chapter 2, of course, you know, it's day of Pentecost. This is describing life in the local church shortly after Pentecost, the first description of the activities of the church. And so they were continually devoting themselves. There were four things. The apostles' doctrine. So they sat and listened to the apostles teach the word of God. And fellowship, koinonia, to the breaking of bread, as I described, probably gatherings where they took the Lord's Supper and they ate together, and to prayer. Now there are four things there. How many of them are to some degree interactive? Hmm? You're not being very interactive right now. No? Three. The first one it's what I'll call a sit-and-listen meeting. They sat and listened to the apostles teach the Word of God. It's the apostolic doctrine. Revelation of God went forth from one call and set aside to do that. it had been prepared by Jesus to do that. And uh, so that person set forth the Word of God. People sat and listened to the apostles' doctrine. That's foundational. That's first and foremost. That gives quality control to everything else. That, that sets the trajectory for everything else. That tells us what everything else should be. But that wasn't all they did. The other three were to some degree interactive. Koinonia, by definition, is interactive. Eating together is interactive, right? Eating together, they took the Lord's Supper. that's interactive. And they prayed together. That's interactive. They weren't. Sitting in a room with their backs to each other praying alone, they're praying for each other or praying together. So, again, summarize that church the four activities, three of them were to some degree interactive. One of the reasons why Koinonia deserves such attention. Even in churches like yours and churches like mine, if I were pastoring in the kind of church I would pastor, the great danger is a lack of the interactive, especially a lack of koinonia. Why is that so? Well, we have fewer church meetings today than we used to, by and large, right? At least when I was growing up. People are busier than ever. And so a rightly motivated pastor, like your pastor, like, God willing, I would be, says, you know what? Fewer and fewer church meetings, well, if we're only going to be able to do one thing and do it well, I'll tell you what we're going to do, and that's preach and teach the Word of God. And that's right. And that was first on the list here, the Apostles' Doctrine. But those who value preaching and teaching the most... Not only the preachers and teachers, but those who value churches, like you, where this is the priority. The problem is, church can become only sit-and-listen meetings. That's not New Testament Christianity. Now again, that's foundational, it's first and foremost, and that's what I'm going to talk about tomorrow, God willing. But that wasn't the exclusive life of a local church. Three of the four activities were, to some degree, interactive. And the one right after the Apostles' Doctrine was koinonia, where the people of God talked together about God and the things of God. And that's why I think this may be the greatest need in most of the healthiest churches. Most of the churches like yours and like the church I pastored and the church I'm a part of now, is people talking together about God and the things of God. And so this is where As we're going to see in the second hour, that passage from last night, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, where the writer says, consider, and you see that the response is that this is where we start stroking our chins. Consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. What's that? Real Christianity. What's the chief mark of a Christian, Jesus said? Love by this all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another and good deeds. We were predestined for good deeds, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It says, right, which God ordained that we should walk in them. Live out our faith, book of James. So love and good deeds, be real Christians. Consider how to stimulate one another to be real Christians, the heart of which is love and good deeds. Okay, consider how to stimulate one another to loving good deeds, comma, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. That was our emphasis last night. This is a habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see that are drawing near. In in that list of one another's that we sometimes talk about in the New Testament, love one another and so forth, all those one another's, here are two of them right here in this passage. Consider how to stimulate one another love and good deeds. Encourage one another. Where does that happen? What's the context? The context is right in the middle of those two one another's. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. In other words, when we assemble together, that's the context of stimulating one another to be real Christians. And that's where we encourage one another. That's where it happens. That doesn't happen when we just sit and listen. Now, the top way we stimulate one another to love and good deeds is this love one another. God says, love one another. That's what the Bible says. I'm teaching you. Love one another. This is what Jesus said. You need to know that. Love one another. So go do it. Obey it. (laughs) That's the most important way. We stimulate love and good deeds. But that is not the only way. We are to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And where does that happen? When we meet together. Not just getting in the same room together. That's not what Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 means. It doesn't mean don't neglect the meeting of yourselves together. It doesn't mean just make sure you show up at church. No, there, we meet together in certain ways whereby certain things happen. And one of those kinds of meetings that, that, where things happen is koinonia. In other words, if you only come to church and just sit and listen, though it may be the best teaching anywhere, you're going to profit from that, but you're going to miss so much. You're going to miss, you're going to miss experiences with the grace of God you can't get by listening to the greatest teaching. Let that sink in. You can go to the church that has the very best preaching and teaching in the world. There are still experiences with the grace of God. You won't get that way. There are things you get only through koinonia. There are things we get only through eating and and taking the Lord's Supper together. There are things that we get from praying together we don't get from preaching And so we live in a time, and again, this is where I'm going tomorrow. And your your pastor has written a book on this. And you know, there's, there's no church in the area that emphasizes and values preaching more than your pastor and you, because that you you were looking for a church like that. And I affirm every bit of that. So without minimizing it at all, it's it's saying, what are some of the blind spots that churches like ours might have? This is one of them. That. We feast on the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. And that's foundational. That is first on the list. But that's not the whole list. Great teaching produces mature, healthy believers who who then are even better equipped to minister to each other. And who can have the richest prayer times. But to have koinonia means we got to talk to each other. But not just about news, weather, sports work, politics, weather, but about God and the things of God. And back up, I'm saying we don't do that, not as much as we think, not as much as we think. And God gives us his grace through quininea in ways we don't get any other way. Do at least one more here. When we fellowship with the church, we also experience the gifts and grace given to others. God has given each believer a spiritual gift, and that gift is to be used for what? Build up the church, the work of ministry, to edify the church. Peter teaches this in 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. In other words, God has gifted you to minister to the body, to minister to other people, and He's given others gifts that are to be used in ministry to you. And fellowship is one of the ways in which this happens, where this occurs. Paul, in the passage uh, mentioned last night, writes about this in Ephesians 4:15 and 16. Keep koinonia in mind here, whenever the word every comes up the word every but speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head even Christ from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies according to the proper work of each individual part causes the growth of the body for building up of itself in love every joint each part Puritan theologian John Owen said of this passage, it is the greatest and most glorious description of the communion of the saints that we have in Scripture. And this, this happens because what's being described here is largely about fellowship, the sharing together, the part that every one of us plays. Jonathan Edwards, you know, one, one edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica calls him the greatest mind America has ever produced. <laughs> it's just laughable sometimes how he says something so concisely, and it's unbelievably profound, but it's like unbelievably simple. He says that, that teaching and listening are correlates, the correlative truths. He said, as God has made the business of son to be teachers then obviously he's made it the business of others to be learners. <laughs> if he's put teachers in the church, he means they're for there to be learners in the church. Well, that's simple. That's pretty obvious. But if he's, some of you have gifts of service. That means he's put in the church people who are to be served and a benefit from your serving. Some have gifts of mercy. He's put people in the church who need mercy. He's put people in the church who who are gifted at ways of encouraging other people. And boy, there are people, every one of us, who need encouragement. And we could go down the list of the kind of ways God has gifted you. He's gifted you because there are people in the church with those needs. Peter divides them up as speaking gifts and serving gifts, just, just big divisions. Some can speak, some serve. It doesn't mean speakers are don't ever have to help set up chairs and, you know, and, and do serving kinds of things. And those who serve, it doesn't mean they never have the responsibility to share the gospel with people. That they can just be a good example of service in the world, and people will be saved. No. Speakers have to serve, servers speak, but some are specially gifted in that. But you, you, your role in the body, and this is a part of fellowship, as I, I fail to say that. You, when you serve other people, that, that's a type of fellowship. And when you show mercy, when you encourage, that's one of the ways that fellowship is manifested. I'm going to emphasize that it's mainly we need it in our speaking. But in the church context, realize that people are, are blessed by what you can do that's unique It's not as visible perhaps. It's not as celebrated. But in the church, people experience the grace of God through you only when you're doing what your part supplies. There's this sharing together. It's why we need one another, and the church is weakened without your role in that. And I'm just kind of holding myself back and time, and, and just, what do I leave out, what do I say here? Uh, there's a go, one more session. So, um, I mean, in my own experience, I, th- I think about a situation where there were about six men that I had contact with, no more than two at a time, but, but what they were able to do for me came about because, you know, these, all but one of these conversations were spontaneous they were informal, but it just because of questions that came up, someone said, how do you know when the power of God has come upon a preacher? Boy, I strained at that one like a dog on a leash, you know. I, I want to I hear that. Or what do you think this verse means? Now, what I'm describing here, koinonia is going on here. But somebody had to initiate it. What do you think this verse means? Then, well, if that's true, then what do we do with this passage? Am I weird or do you ever think about these things also? See, I'm drawing hearts out with that kind of question. Let me ask you what you think about something I have been thinking about. See, each of these men had gifts, experiences I don't have. They have education, if you will, learning experiences I don't have. It would be foolish of me. It would be wasteful of me not to take advantage of this means of grace that God has put all around me. And you too. And just showing up generally doesn't do it. There has to be an interaction. And often it's talking. It's, it's with questions. And the second session is, is mostly practical. I'm going to give you lists of questions. You can use Cornelia cultivating questions. That when you're around these tables or you go to lunch with someone, you're at work and you have a meeting with another Christian, I'm going to give you questions you can actually use. Questions you put in your phone. You can pull them out and say, you know, you can cultivate koinonia in that situation. Very practical in that. In the next hour here after our break. But it is foolish, it's wasteful not to draw from the resources the grace of God given us in the local church. First is showing up. That was last night. Why go to church? Now it's how, how do we plug in, so to speak? How do we draw from, from what others can give us that are older, that are younger, Church members who are leaders, church members who are not. This spiritual smorgasbord of koinonia, we're invited to feed from that and and to be strengthened. Um, I'll do one more, it's shorter, then we'll take a break. When we fellowship our practice of the spiritual disciplines, especially the personal spiritual disciplines is encouraged. Churches, individual Christians, wither without fellowship. One of the reasons is uh, the, the, the spiritual disciplines God gives us that promote spiritual health, these are, these are fueled often by fellowship, by koinonia. Uh, the intake of the word, my, my own prayer life, uh, other spiritual disciplines, you help me with that. When my zeal is flagging, but I hear testimonies from you, that encourages me to go back and remain faithful. When I'm withering spiritually, your, your teaching, your testimony, your examples, uh, and when I'm discouraged in my prayer life, and one of you shares an answer to prayer, you know what that makes me want to do? makes me want to pray. That encourages me not to give up in prayer. When someone says, you know, I've been praying for something for a long, long time, and then the prayer is answered, and I've been praying for something a long time, I'm, con- I'm, I'm encouraged, don't quit. When someone is, shares the overflow of reading a meaningful Christian book, well, that makes me want to say, all right, look, I, you know, I've been saying I was too busy, now I, I, need, to, I need to go back and, and pick, pick up that book that I laid down and haven't read in a while. Fellowship stimulates good spiritual habits. And I'll I'll finish this part with this illustration from Esther Edwards Burr, one of the 11 remarkable children of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards, perhaps the most famous. She married Aaron Burr, Sr., Uh, who was president of Princeton, became president of Princeton, he would die and be succeeded by Jonathan Edwards, who was his father-in-law. Edwards took smallpox, smallpox inoculation, reacted to that, died six weeks into the presidency of Princeton University. What might have happened had he been there for a long time? So Esther grew up in... One of the best homes of fellowship ever, ever, <laughs> not invented, what's the word I'm looking for, ever made. Um, she, in, in a biography of Jonathan Edwards, Ian Murray said this about Esther. Okay, so we're talking about Esther Edwards, and by the way, her son would be Aaron Burr, Jr., who would become vice president of the United States. Shoot Alexander Hamilton in the famous duel, the most famous duel in American history that led to the elimination of duels. Esther Edwards Burr wrote to a friend. She uh, had a very dear friend there at Princeton, New Jersey, who moved away to New York. And she would write, and she was a very precious friend. And Ian Murray says of her the occasions she seems to have appreciated most were the times of spiritual conversation. That's koinonia. In the mid-1750s, she wrote to a friend describing a recent evening of fellowship she'd experienced there in Princeton, and she's writing a friend in New York. She said, oh my dear, how charming it is to sit and hear such excellent persons converse on the experimentals of religion. In those days, they would use experimental, where we mean experiential. In other words, they were talking about the Christian life. It seemed like old times, she said, I esteem religious conversation. I esteem, I consider religious conversation, talking about God and the things of God, one of the best helps to keep up religion in the soul. In other words, my spiritual disciplines. Accepting secret devotion, I don't know but the very best. And what a lamentable thing that it is so neglected by God's own children. It is neglected. It's one of the best helps, one of the best gifts God has given us for keeping us strong, spiritual. And we often neglect it. We trade it and we are satisfied with socializing and not fellowship. Did you see the stories just in the last couple of weeks of the 14, 15-year-old kid who had, whose vision just suddenly went to like 2,300, you know, legally blind, and they discovered his whole life he's eaten four things chicken nuggets, or chicken strips, Pringles. Anybody see this story? What were the other two things? French fries, French fries and something else. It's all he ever had ever eaten. And surprise, surprise, uh, he wasn't very healthy. In fact, his, he suddenly lost most of his vision, at least clarity, not, it went dark, but I mean, couldn't see. And they said, it's, you're, you're, Nutrition, such poor nutrition has led to such poor physical health. Well, poor spiritual nutrition leads to poor spiritual health. You don't hear the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, you're really going to suffer. But if you don't feast on koinonia, similarly, you're not going to feel like a very spiritually strong Christian. You will struggle spiritually. It's kept up, it's built up through koinonia. Well, now we're going to take a break and socialize for a little bit. (laughs) Maybe have some corninia plugged in there, I hope. So any, you need to come, Pastor? Okay. Hey, before you run out, uh, let me just...